Hey, it's Zachy. In this episode, we sat down with Noah Abramowitz, an American-Israeli Jew living in Jerusalem. We discussed his connection with the city, specifically the Temple Mount, his relationship with the neighboring Arab demographic, and his beliefs on coexistence. You're listening to... Israel Underground. Jerusalem is often at the heart of any conversation in Israel that touches on religion or nationality, and rightly so. Ripe with history, religious monuments, and places of great cultural importance, those who choose to live there often do so with great ideological foundation. This past spring, leading up to Operation Guardian of the Walls and following it, many accounts of violence were reported in Jerusalem. This has led to a hot-button dialogue discussing racial, political, and religious antagonism. And in the face of all of that, we wanted to hear from some of the people who are actually living in Jerusalem, what living there means to them, and how their sometimes strong beliefs affect their day-to-day lives. Noah Abramowitz is passionately connected with the Temple Mount, a holy site to Jews, Muslims, and Christians alike, which is currently being managed by Muslim authorities. Despite the assumed profile that comes with his strong ideology, Noah also is a promoter of coexistence in both belief and practice. My name is Noah E. Abramowitz. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I moved to Israel when I was 18 after finishing a year in yeshiva, and I'm currently studying my second year in Hebrew University, studying international relations and communications. Um, In the past, I spent a year in Perth, Australia, as a shaliach of an organization called Torah Mitzion. Um, I had served three years in the army as a liaison to foreign militaries. And other than that, I enjoy making my own beer, mixing cocktails, and writing blogs on Times of Israel. Okay, interesting. So I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna touch on those uh, those blogs uh, before the end of this interview. Um, first of all, though, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your your origins and how you came to live here in Israel. Tell me a little bit about that journey. For sure. Ever since I was eight years old, I was going to B'nai Akiva in Baltimore. My brother was one of the heads of the local chapter, and after a while, the chapter in Baltimore closed down. And lots and lots of people from our community moved to to Israel, including my own brother. And as time went on, you know, you go to, I went to Camp Mosheva while I was, uh, while I was a kid and I became very involved in B'nai Kiva. And even though our chapter had closed, I tried to restart it when I was in 11th and 12th grade. And I went to all the Shabbatonim that were in the area and I really tried to stay involved. And it was really the one place where I felt that I belonged and it, you know, gave me a sense of purpose and meaning. And so I had this naturally very positive vibe towards the Zionist sentiments sentiments, and the, you know, the nature of Zionist education. And because of all that, I felt that my one appropriate place to be was in Israel. When I spoke with my father about it, the first time that I said, dad, I want to make Aliyah, he said to me, well, I guess that one is on me because you can't send a kid to all these programs and to everything that, you know, I tried to, to give you and then not expect them to want to make Aliyah. A, uh, a very uh, uh, Zionistic origin story. I, w- I want to ask you kind of how has that, that approach altered itself as, as you've kind of lived here and, and grown uh, to be a, a, a real member of Israeli society? Wow. That, is, that describes, that is quite a, a journey to describe. Um, when I first arrived here, I would say that I had a very simplistic um, APAC level Hasbara understanding of the, of the nature of Israel. Um, what I like to call cherry tomato Zionism, 
where somebody mentions the occupation and you fire them down by saying, yeah, but we invented the cherry tomato and the USB and we have soda stream. And I didn't really know much about the intricacies of the situation here. Um, and then in my second year here, I was at a program at Hebrew University and I met a guy named Mustafa and we became very good friends. And Mustafa lived in Shafat at the time. And we became buds through being in the same program. We were both learning Hebrew. And eventually my perspectives kind of changed. I was like, well, something's going on here. There's somebody on the other side of this discussion. So Mustafa and I would, you know, meet up every now and then. We went out for drinks. He would have a, I would have my beer and he'd have a Coca-Cola um, because as you know, alcohol is haram. And he wasn't able to, uh, to drink with me, but he was able to sit with me and talk. Um, and we would talk about religion. We would talk about the, the similarities between the Quran and the Bible. And we became pretty good mates. By the time I made it to the army, you know, my opinions were changing a bit. Um, in 2015, I, before, before I went to the army, it was about Yom Shalim that year. I wrote a piece in Times uh, Israel basically discouraging folks from, uh, from going on the, the flag march through uh, Sha'ar Shem on, uh, on Jerusalem Day. I got a lot of people who wrote to me saying, you don't understand the situation here, which is funny to say to a person who in November 2014 was almost run over by a ramming, uh, by a ramming terrorist um, in the area of Sheikh Jarrah. And that trauma has stayed with me for a very long time, but has not um, influenced my ability to befriend um, people on the other side of the, of the, I guess on the, on the other side of the story, I think is the best way to describe it. Because whether you want to talk about a, you know, a fence, a line, whatever it is, there's somebody on the other side of the story who is more prolific uh, than just a geographical uh, place. And I think things have developed most of all because I have met uh, more and more Palestinians and more and more uh, people. I study in the University of Palestinians. My boss this summer um, was a Palestinian and his uh, whole hamula uh, managed me on the date farm that I worked at. Um, over the course of the summer in Enchatseba. And we became incredible friends. I smoked my first Nargila with those guys. And I, you know, I had Baklawa from their, from their village. And we prayed together even um, on one afternoon. And it was a magical experience that, you know, is complicated. A couple of weeks ago, when things really started heating up, I sent a message to my foreman and I was on the verge of tears. And I said, I am so worried that when things get bad here, people are not going to think about the fact that it is the leadership that is to be blamed for many of the failures here but they will think that it is the fault of every person who doesn't look like them. And I am scared. And I want you to know that I love you and I care about you. You will always be my friend. You will always be dear to me. And he sent me back a voice note that said, don't you worry, Nuh, which is what they call me. Nuh is the, private, the prophet Noah in the Quran. And he said to me, Nuh, don't worry. You are a member of our family and we love you and we care about you. And nothing that the news says uh, will change that. And obviously I cried a lot getting that. That hasn't changed the fact that I still vote right wing um, when it comes to elections. Um, that has not changed the fact that I'm still very much a supporter of the Zionist holidays, the Zionist values. But there needs to be more sensitivity. And that is something which I have been trying to in integrate into my life. Um, and I'm also trying now to make a concerted effort to learn more Arabic, which I believe is another uh, fundamental gap here in the story. Um, how are you supposed to ever come to a, to a table to discuss matters if you can't speak the same language? And that's a very important part of my current uh, journey. Mm -hmm. I see. So that's uh, that, that's quite the quite the story of uh, you know making these connections, coming from from the background that you came from, and then making these connections, growing so close with these people, and striving to, as you said, hear hear the other side, hear both sides, um, and kind of have a more universal uh, worldview. I'm sure that uh, 
that's very uh, helpful, especially uh, given recent um, tension. It is not only helpful, it is incredibly enriching, I would say, is that it allows for a, a deeper understanding of things. And that's, uh, that's something that's really important, I think. Um, so as I understand, I guess moving forward, before the interview, we, we kind of discussed uh, things to speak about. And, and you mentioned kind of uh, that one of the things that is super important to you is your connection with the, the Temple Mount. Um, Haggabayit in, uh, in in Hebrew. Um, can you give me a little bit of background on on that subject and explain what your take is and um, yeah, kind of elaborate on that. One of the things that this you know discussion begins with is the fact that many Orthodox and other halachic observant Jews are under the impression of is that the Temple Mount is off limits to a halachically observant person, and that is cogently false. There is a long history of Jews going to the Temple Mount to pray. There is a very well-sourced tradition that Jews would go to the Temple Mount even after the destruction of the Temple. And there's halachic intricacies, which a lot of people um, have never learned, simply because they are, were not relevant to a, a Jew living in the diaspora. And for many, you know, for almost two millennia, we were, we were there. And the, these questions were completely irrelevant. We had situations where not only was it irrelevant to talk about whether it was permitted or not, when we start seeing that it is forbidden for a Jew to go to the Temple Mountain, that that is such a theory, that is in the wake of the Ottomans issuing a ban on Jews from, from praying on the Temple Mount. And since then, for 500 years or so, that has been the, the understanding is that it is forbidden for Jews to go to the Temple Mount because we do not know where the inner sanctum of the Temple is. Um, but the problem is that we have testimonies, we have archaeological evidence, we have everything that can help us figure out where that is. At the end of the day, it becomes less of a discussion of halacha and more of a discussion of thinking. And how does a person think? Does a person think that Jews should be focused on the Temple Mount right now? Does a person think that people should be focused on other things? Should we be dealing more with inner Jewish uh, fighting and disagreements than with uh, the holiest place in Judaism? And I went for the first time about a few days before Purim in uh, in 2004, in 2015. And then immediately after that, I went three days later and I started going on a, a regular basis once every two weeks, um, which then when I was in the army became once every two months. Um, and then after the army became once a, every, you know, holiday. And, you know, once I went to Australia, that number uh, declined rapidly. And then there was Corona when all the men's mikvahs were closed. So I did not go very often at all this past year. Um, and it is a, a topic which is close to my heart because I am not a very spiritual person. I used to be. I was very much a follower of a lot of Hasidic teaching and, and such. And eventually that be, gave way to rationalism. But there is something about the Temple Mount that I cannot place. And it is an inherent trepidation, is an inherent fear, an inherent connection to this one patch of ground, which has such a spiritual polarization to it that draws me to it and makes me long for it and makes me pine for it. And more than that, to get absolutely aggravated whenever anything happens on it, which it doesn't deserve, or when people talk about the Temple Mount in a way which it doesn't deserve. And that is an incredibly sensitive nerve for me. It's upsetting to me when I see on Al Jazeera that um, settlers stormed the Al-Aqsa complex um, again this week or whenever they, uh, they write very frequently, which any person who's been to the Temple Mount knows lies that is 
misinformation, Jews who go to the Temple Mount undergo a thorough security check before going. We are walked around the premises by a police escort, and we are walking in silence. We are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount outwardly. We are not allowed to wear talit or tefillin on the Temple Mount, which is a different discussion for a different time, just as to how frustrated that makes me as well. That in the Jewish state, the most holy place to the Jewish people is off limits for a Jew to pray. That people get worked up about the, the Kotel restrictions and things that go on there. That non-Orthodox denominations of, the, of, of Judaism are not permitted to pray as they would like. And that is very, very frustrating. But when people complain about the fact that certain people aren't allowed to bring a Sefer Torah to the Kotel, and then I sit there thinking, well, no Jew has been allowed to bring a Sefer Torah to Har Habayit since we received it back through divine providence in 1967, that makes me frustrated. That makes me angry. It makes me feel like we've missed the point. And I find it very hard to worship at the Kotel these days because to me, it feels like if somebody that you really, really loved was in town, you would go visit them at their house. You would not pick up the phone and call them. You would want to see them face to face. To me, the presence of God rests at the Temple Mount and it is very tangible there. It is palpable. And so when I am far away from that, I am picking up my cell phone when I could be talking to this entity face to face. You, you clearly have very strong uh, views and a very strong position um, on the Temple Mount and, uh, you know, how your rights are being, I guess, um, subdued or repressed in, in that sense. Um, what's the if you were in charge, what's the next step? What, right. What's the what's the the, the way forward? Um, towards, uh, you know, coexisting with this space that is so uh, sacred to so many different peoples. Um, what is the way to uh, make that jive, so to speak? Wow, that is a the million dollar question in the Middle East in general. Um, I would say that the Al-Aqsa complex, uh, the Haram al-Sharif, um, carries a very sacred importance to the, to the Muslim people. It is incredibly important to them. And very often it has been used as a tool of propaganda by leadership to encourage people to go on riots and to, and to, to rise up. And that is an incredible, it shows an incredible connection, which I really admire, um, to this sacred space. Now, many on the right wing of the Jewish spectrum will say, well, it's not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. It, they have no connection to it. Al-Aqsa wasn't even in this area. It was somewhere in Saudi Arabia. And when I hear something like that, I say, well, who are you to say that? You know, every culture has their own Nema history. In fact, I think it was even your spouse who first introduced me to the idea of a Nema history that doesn't necessarily mean to need to be 100% accurate, but it is what the people believe and what the people to what the people are connecting. Now, I think the main point that is obstructing this path is a lack of education. When I received a Instagram story from a friend of mine who was on the Temple Mount during Ramadan, and she was in the Dome of the Rock, Kobata uh, Sahra, as it's called in Arabic, and she was there. And as a halachic Jew, I am not allowed to go into the Dome of the Rock, even after mikvah, even after you know the necessary precautions. I'm not allowed to go into the, to the Dome of the Rock because that's where the, the Holy of Holies was. So I sent her a message that said, you have no idea how jealous I am. I am so jealous that you get to be in that sacred space that I'm not going to be allowed into. And she said, I didn't know this place was sacred to you. And I said, what? She said, don't you have the wall? And I realized that so few people 
I think for the most part, Jews are unaware of this, but obviously if Jews are unaware of it, then for the most part, people who aren't Jewish also aren't aware of it, is that the Kotel, the, the wall, is only of significance to get to the Temple Mount. People don't know that the Temple Mount is special to the Jewish people. And because the Jewish people have not been connected well enough to the Temple Mount, it has been very, very easy to convince other people that we are not actually connected to it, that we don't belong to it, and it doesn't belong to us. I think the main way forward is a re-education, is a working on Hasbara about the Temple Mount and about the Jewish connection to the Temple Mount. And also, if Jews can understand better the Muslim connection to the Temple Mount, then that gives us something in common. If you want to know what my solution would be to this matter, is to establish a synagogue on the north side of the Temple Mount. And if the synagogue is on the north side of the Temple Mount, that means that when the Jewish people pray, they look towards the same direction as the Muslims look when they look towards Mecca. And that means that everyone is bowing in the same direction. Nobody's beliefs feel violated. And everyone is praying in the right direction for them, but also in the right direction for the other person. It doesn't offend anybody. It doesn't bother anybody. And that can really be a space for coexistence. But again, that needs to start with a massive campaign for re-education. And that will only start with more conversations between peoples, which is in general, a very hard thing to achieve in the Middle East. You know, you find um, situations where people will talk to each other. I think I went the entire summer working with my, my coworkers and we never talked about Haram al-Sharif because it was too much of a hot button issue. We were afraid to talk about it. But finally, at the end of the summer, when we started talking about, you know, more values, I thought it would be very hard to explain to my coworkers that I can't have makluba that they'd prepared because I can't eat food that's cooked by somebody who isn't Jewish. But the second I, you know, I braved up and described it to them, they admired it. They said, that is your halakha, that is your sharia, that is what we respect. We respect a person who, who believes in that and a person who has those values. So if the Jewish people can sit down with Palestinians and with Muslims in general and talk about the deeper meanings to these things and talk about a common history, but the important thing to realize is that this could have been a place where the religious element of being belonging to one side or the other could have been undone. It could have been avoided. And I believe it still can be, but we can't let another 50 years go by before we start that conversation because then it'll be too late. I see. It sounds to me like a, a very, um, I mean, a comprehensive understanding, uh, I guess, scratches the, the, the surface of, of what we've got here. Um, in your view, what is the way to promote that kind of uh, dialogue, that kind of, I guess, interfaith interaction um, that's going to uh, enable that sort of uh, dialogue? Lots more people who are willing to have that deep conversation, those deep religious conversations, and not be apologetic about things. When I spoke with my brother, you know, many years ago, or maybe it wasn't even my brother, it was somebody else, um, about why we shouldn't go to the Temple Mount. He didn't believe that we should go to the Temple Mount. And I said to him, why not? And this person who I was speaking with whom I was speaking says to me, because it is a place that other people are sensitive about. We shouldn't go and aggravate other people's sensitivities. And I said, that's the problem, is that we are being dishonest about our narrative. If you want me to try and you know bite my tongue when I'm talking with people about what this place means to me, I can't do that. I can't downplay the significance of the Temple Mounts to me because the other person doesn't do that. They don't. A Muslim will never tell you that this place is not incredibly special to them. They know that this place is important to them and they value it. And we need to respect that. And the same way we need to respect our own value of this place. Now what the rabbinate has done in denying the Jewish connection to the Temple Mount through prohibiting people from going up 
has been absolutely catastrophic when it comes to national conscience about this place. You know, there are people on both sides of the spectrum who look at people like me and say, you're nuts, you're a religious fanatic, and you should not be here. You do not belong here. And I think that that apology, the, the, the lack of belonging to, to the Temple Mount is one of the biggest impediments to honest conversation about it. Plenty of people want to deny the Muslim connection to it in some attempt to compensate for the, facts that the, for the fact that the Jews don't have a connection to the Temple Mount today. And I find that to be absurd. That doesn't do any good to anyone. You want to undermine two narratives at the same time? Go for it, but you're not going to get anywhere. I think that if we would be more honest, more open, and more serious about it on our end, then when we would meet with other people for any other number of coexistence you know, meetings, which need to happen in my mind, not over, you know, politicians who are talking about, you know, area A, B, C, but around people who are talking about Nargila and coffee and baklava, okay, and being able to talk as people and have religious dialogue about common books and common history. Then once we get to those meetings with those facts, then the narrative starts changing. I think that we stand to gain so much by being passionate about something, by having a more coherent understanding of something than just letting it be there and say, oh, off limits. I wanted to ask, I guess, to zoom out a little bit um, and, to, and to ask uh, for your, your take on specifically if you have any insights or, or experiences you know, about religious coexistence that you've had from your time living in Jerusalem. I understand that you've spoken with, uh, with friends who are Palestinian and you've had these experiences on the Temple Mount, but what kind of insight has that given you into the, uh, I guess, the um, opportunities uh, in Israel and in Jerusalem specifically for, for coexistence uh, in a religious sense? So if there's going to be coexistence in a religious sense, it is going to happen on the Temple Mount. It is going to happen in those shared spaces. Religious dialogue happens where you can find common ground with people. So like I said, my Palestinian co-workers called me Nuh during the summer, and I introduced myself as such because Nuh is the prophet in, in the Quran. And they know that name. They don't know Noah. Noah is from Arabic. But I find the common ground, and immediately we've become, we've become a little bit closer. you know. But the, the real thing which started things rolling between me and my Palestinian co-workers was the fact that one day my boss looked at me and saw me off of, off of the lift, okay? And he saw me praying. And it was the afternoon because I'd seen him praying and I was reminded that I needed to daven mincha at some point. So I got down off of my date lift and I took a break and I prayed in the middle of this date field. And he looks at me and says, are you feeling okay? You know, because most people are up and, uh, and working and I seem to be taking a break. I'm, I'm praying in my very, very broken Arabic. I tried to, to say, you know, this is my tzala. This is my, my prayers. And he says, you pray? I said, three times a day. He looked at me and says, you know, I pray five times a day. I said, I figured, you know, you, you seem very, uh, very devout. He says to me, yeah, I pray five times a day. When do you pray? And we started that conversation of two people who pray, who were able to find common ground over the fact that, you know, at times during the year, we both fast. And at times during the day, we both take time off. And at some point, you know, one day I hear a whistle, you know, from down below. And my boss says to me, he says, no, come down, we're going to pray. And so he and I faced in different directions because we were in the south of Israel. He was facing towards Mecca. I was facing towards Jerusalem. And we both bow in a similar fashion. You know, he, him on his knees, me with my back. But 
at different times during the prayers, there are similar motions. There are similar things that you are saying. And at the end of the, the Muslim prayer, one of the last things you say is, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, right? Um, pray, peace to you and God's mercy on you. And we say, you know, he who makes peace in his realm should make peace over us. And the idea is that we are both praying for peace at the end of our prayers, and we both bow in different directions when saying that. We bow to the, to the other, you know, to the right and to the left when we say that, both of us. And so when I finished my prayers, I came to him, I shook his hand, and I said that to him. And he was very, very moved. So this discussion needs to come from a place of this is a common ground that we have. This is not a fight. We both believe that this site has incredible meaning, right? To the Muslims, it is not the place where Abraham tried to sacrifice Isaac. It is the place where Muhammad ascended to heaven. The place where Abraham tried to sacrifice, I believe it's Ishmael or Isaac, I don't remember which one, um, is in Mecca to them. You know, it's the place of the, of the Kaaba. But to them, you know, it's, a, it's the same story. We have the same story. It just happened in different places. This needs to be a place of common stories, of common histories, of common beliefs. And if we can create prayer spaces for Jews and Muslims together off the Temple Mount, then it won't, it'll only be a matter of time before we have unified prayer spaces on the Temple Mount. I think we're going we're gonna to wrap up here. But before we go, I wanted to ask if there's anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners. I would say that here in Israel, we have been handed an incredible tapestry for things to become completely new. Recently, I've become involved with a group called Beit Prat, which is through the, you know, the, the management of Micha Goodman. And Micha and his organization have really tried to encourage a rejuvenation, as it were, with emphasis on the Jew of, uh, of Jewish culture here in Israel and thinking of things in new ways. And I think it was my belief that things could change between us and the Palestinians, which led me to then connect to this group of Jews who are also trying to make things different and bridge the gaps between Datim and Chilonim and between people who have different standards of religious worship. And I think that the ideas go together. We are very much set in, I am right, you are left. I am Jew, you are Muslim. I am settler, you are um, you are a person who lives in Tel Aviv, whatever it might be. And those distances that we have in our minds you know, separate us from other people and make us very, very set in our ways. And if we can get out of that and we can shake that, then we have so much to gain. And those spaces where things are happening, the most risky areas are the places where things happen the most. And I think that when people need to step out of their comfort zone, that's the only place that we'll be able to find common ground to stand upon if we just, you know, reach out our hands and our feet into that space. That's my thoughts. Well put. So uh, hopefully um, all of these, uh, all, everybody listening is taking notes. And, uh, I hope so. Noah Abramowitz, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing with us your unique perspective. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed talking. Noah's story helps give a face to the city of Jerusalem and the heated debates that come with it. If you have another perspective on any of these issues, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line. You can send us a message on anchor.fm slash Israel underground. And you can also follow us on Facebook at il.underground. Israel Underground is written and produced by Eden and Zaki Farber-Hemison. All additional audio is used under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening.